He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, April 3, 2021. Happy Passover. Yes, the festival continues. But now I'm thinking about COVID passing over. I am long free of two weeks past my last vaccine, and I'm feeling good, confident. What about you? I hope you are doing well. Passover to me is really about family, not just your blood relatives, but people who become part of your family, like the people who listen to this show. What a show I have. Mike Litwin has celebrated Passovers for a long time. He is a preeminent journalist, columnist, my colleague at the Colorado Sun, the one, the only Michael Litwin. And then my troubadour, Dave Gunners. He was at my Seder. What a great musician. He is rebounding. And his song, The Rebound, it's fantastic. Wait till you hear it. And then Craig's Lawyer's Lounge welcomes back Daniel Recht. Dan Recht has been one of Denver's best lawyers for a very long time. Find out why. This is a great show. Happy Passover. Mike Litwin, what an honor. <laughs> How are you? Good. Happy Passover. Happy Passover to you. I can't believe I've never had you on my podcast yet. You are my favorite columnist in Denver. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to be on your podcast. I'm glad that I don't have to do it live in the morning, so even better. No question about it. Tell everybody... <laughs> We're going to talk about Mike Litwin more than anything else, because I think you are a fascinating character. But what about Passover for Mike Litwin? Does it mean anything anymore? Or why don't we start with the way Passover was when you grew up? When I grew up, let's see, my maternal grandfather was the head guy in our, in our family. He was a president of the temple. We were reformed, reformed Jews. And he took it very, very seriously. And the worst instance was when my daughter was a little girl and she was like four years old and they didn't have a kid's table. And she was talking all the time while he was talking. And so to keep her quiet, we kept giving her grape juice. And about midway through, somewhere like we get the horseradish, somewhere around that time, she threw up all over the... <laughs> the grapefruits <laughs> all over my grandmother's tablecloth. In the modern day, normally I would be traveling. Well, tell us, where were you growing up at this reformed show with your maternal grandfather presiding? What city was this? Was this the old country or we're talking about America, right? We're talking about America. My family is all from New York originally or before they came 
over around uh, in the late 1800s. So from various parts of Europe, of course, and then to New York. And then my maternal grandparents moved to Virginia sometime after World War II. And my family moved to Virginia uh, when I was about, well, we moved back and forth in New York to Virginia a couple of times. So you're an East Coast guy. I'm an all of East Coast guy. I've lived in every time zone, but I'm, I'm originally an East Coast guy. I remain an East Coast guy. I know you do. That separates you. And you're from those long-haired hippie Jews. That kind of goes <laughs> with the Long-haired hippie Jews. Uh, they'd be, used to be, they used to be long-haired hippie commie. Red diaper babies. Right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, now just old, eccentric, long-haired Jew. Do you still have a Seder? I normally go to my sister's Seder, and she lives in Virginia Beach, but no traveling this year. And sometimes I go to Seder at uh, Susan Green's house. Wonderful. So that's cool. So I've never led a Seder. Really? But I have done the four questions. I did the four questions many times in my youth. What do you think the Passover Seder has ongoing relevance? I enjoy Seder. And I, I think most people, you know, most Jews look at the whole idea of Passover, you know, Jewish slaves apparently leaving Egypt and coming to Israel. There's no actual historical evidence that ever happened, by the way. But that the story, I think, has translated into modern times, translated into the civil rights movement, it translated into recent anti-Semitism. So I think it's, you know, the story is timeless, and whether it actually happened or not, the story is timeless. And I know that in my modern Passover times, the story always gets related to, you know, the politics of the time. Does that happen in your family? I don't know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I come from a family of lawyers, and the whole Haggadah talks about the law. And I write a column or two, and there's a lot of columnizing. You know, one rabbi <laughs> says this, here's another way to look at it. I mean, it's a classic for the kind of thing that you and I do for a living. Yes. I mean, I grew up to be, I, I made my choice at one point in life, which was to either be a lawyer, go to law school, or to go work for a newspaper. So it, it seemed like the only two professions that I could possibly perform at any kind of high level. So I chose, I chose newspapers because three years of law school didn't appeal to me. My daughter, though, as you know, is a law professor. So and my nephew, uh, my daughter's son, also a lawyer, he's running for the Virginia House of Delegates. Wow. He's the Democratic nominee. Way to go. Yeah, now part of government. I mean, you have bounced around and we're going to get to it or we could talk about it right now. You decided to be a writer. I think it kind of flows from a lot of Jewish Passover Seder. It's what your maternal grandfather call on you i mean you did the four questions that's a lot of pressure as a young kid i was uh, taught by my mother as a very young child that i was somehow gifted and meant 
for great things. Just so, like every Jewish boy, according to their mother. Exactly. Um, I, I always say that if I were to assassinate the president, not likely at this time, but if I were to assassinate the president, my mother would go around bragging what a good shot I was. Oh, boy. That's the kind of, that's the kind of mother I had. So um, she's passed on, but she was, she was a typical Jewish mother, and um, her mother was an even more typical Jewish mother. So, Did she fell over your success? Did she like your writing, or was she a critic? Oh, no, no, she loved my writing. My grandmother, who was the matriarch of the family, was more of a critic. The story I like to tell is that I was on the Today Show when, uh, when I was 29 years old. This was a big Huge thing in my family that I would be on, on the day show, right? So, it's big uh, in any family. Yeah. So, my grandmother, who had retired to Virginia, to Miami Beach, being, you know, as all Jews did at the it's time. required. Yeah. So, she's gathered like, you know, everybody in the building, in the apartment building, to come watch me do this. So, I do my uh, four minutes with Brian Gumble. And I'm done. And she writes me this long, beautiful letter, which begins, well, not, not the very beginning, but soon goes into the fact that she was so proud that I didn't roll my hair with my finger the way that I usually do. So, so I know it's going to be about the hair. <laughs> so, so that's my family. My father was a newspaper writer. He got he got sick very early with multiple sclerosis and died very young. I had a terrible, terrible um, disease. Yeah, it's been a long time now. Yeah, but it still hurts. I mean, but it's cool that you emulated him and became a newspaper writer too. You know, it's strange. I thought about this often that I ended up having the life that he didn't get to have. So. I didn't get to know him because uh, he was he died when I was young, and I didn't really get to know him. I knew him only as a father, not as a person, you know. Right. But I got to live, in a way, the life that he didn't get to live. So that means a lot to me. And it's nice that your mother took pride in what you did because she got that experience through you that she wanted to probably have through her husband, right? Yeah, my mother would. On any trip that she ever took, she would always, she's always the person on the plane who would, you know, talk to you nonstop, whether you wanted to talk to her nonstop or not. It's called giving a kibitz. I mean, that's yes. what Jewish grandmothers do. I, I exactly. love that. I had a grandma Goldie, Goldie Silverman. <laughs> if you needed to cast a Jewish grandmother, my grandma Goldie would have done just fine. So, my great grandmother was my first Jewish grandmother. She had a candy store in Brooklyn. And, you know, what could be better in life than going to visit your great grandmother, who not only had a candy store, but she would fix me every time I came there. She would fix me potato latkes, which is my favorite thing in the world. Oh, mine too. Extra well done. And uh, what do you put on it? 
What, what do I put on it? Yes, anything on the latke? Do you put cinnamon and sugar or sour cream? No, I don't. No, no, no. I, I'm a hardcore, hardcore potato guy. And I learned from my grandfather that when you rub the potatoes, that the blood that comes off your knuckles, that's the critical part in the taste of mm. the of the, of the oh, boy. And you ate that, and you're a guy who we read your column, and you won't go out because of COVID, even though you are vaccined up. So am I. I'm too much yes, clear. I went to opening day at the Rockies. It was wonderful. I'm back, baby. I'm ready. I'll put on a mask for everybody else, but I'm ready to live again. What are you doing? I'm a CDC guy, so here's the thing. So I'm old, right? I'm old. How old? I'm going to be 72 next month. That's nothing. <laughs> I'm old, and I have an autoimmune disease. Right, but here's what I'm saying. I have the vaccine. I mean, if the vaccine doesn't work, then we're all in trouble. But if you're vaxxed up... We don't know what it means for the variants, and I worry about passing it on. I have, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to be uh, out there killing anybody. Maybe it's because you've been to so many opening days and great sporting events. We all got to know you as a sports writer, but I got a kick out of going to opening day. It just felt like the world is coming back to normal, and the Rockies even beat the Dodgers. They did, and I'm a Dodger fan, so I'm a Dodger fan all the way back from Brooklyn. I went to Ebbets Field when I was four years old. Wow. Duke Snyder hit a home run. He became my favorite player. What a great favorite player to have, although he always operated in the shadow of Mickey and Willie. To some people, he did. I, I always say that I became a newspaper columnist because I argue from the youngest age despite the fact that it wasn't true, that Duke Snyder was the best of the three. So I learned how to make the argument. It's like a lawyer, right? right. Learn how to make the argument <laughs> either way. So yes, I had to stand up for the Duke, despite the numbers on the back of the baseball cards. What a great fan base the Brooklyn Dodgers, LA Dodgers have. Is that what started your fascination with sports? Well, in my family, there was several important things. There was baseball and the Dodgers. My first dog's name was Dodger. He was he was in the family before I was. At Brooklyn, did they have Dodger dogs the way they do at Chavez Ravine? They did not have Dodger but you dogs. Did. You had your own Dodger dog. <laughs> my own dog. I don't remember what it was called, though. You know, Brooklyn was, at the time, almost completely Italian and Jewish. And, you know, the players all lived there, you know, that they all lived in Brooklyn. There's a famous story in some World Series that Gil Hodges, who's Catholic, I think he went over 21 in this World Series, I think it was maybe 1952. And it was, a, it was a warm Sunday in October during this World Series. And on the Sunday, the priest said to the congregation, he said, we're not going to have anything here today. Please just go home and pray for Gil Hodges. And I think that's what the Dodgers were like. And of course, for our family, they were Dodger fans before this. But once Jackie Robinson was signed, then it became this, you know, political thing, too. So this was not only your baseball team you were born into, 
but they also were the first baseball team to have a black player. It's all civil rights. So this was a huge thing in my family and I, a lot of families in, in New York. So I, that helped the Dodgers. And of course, there's the whole boys of summer things. I grew up, I mean, in the first 17 years of my life, the Dodgers were in nine World Series. So it was the Dodgers and the Yankees. I hated the Yankees, loved the Dodgers. And that's where my sports thing came from. But my family, we did we did sports, politics, and books. Those were the three the three big things in my family. And what about food? We did Jewish food. We did we're Jewish. We so we did Chinese food. Um, and right. And uh, after you finish lunch, you start talking about what's for dinner. Right. Yeah. That's... Exactly. And we go to the you know Second Avenue Deli, and you know. New York is is food heaven, and it was then too. But, you know, ethnic foods, those were the only foods that mattered. Well, I can relate a little bit. Growing up in Denver, we had a similar affection with the Broncos, perhaps you noticed. But back to Jackie Uh, Robinson in Brooklyn, I've read a lot of the biographies. I watched the movies. He had a lot of positive interactions with the Jewish community, and there was a kinship between blacks and Jews that manifested in the civil rights movement. And again, this last year, and we will get to modern times because Johnny Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in Georgia, I mean, that coalition, if you can get blacks and Jews together, you can do a lot of great things. Don't you agree? Yeah. It's a very, and it's a very large Jewish population in Atlanta. Right. Yes, absolutely. And yes, they're being, Jews were very much involved in the founding of the NAACP and have long played a leading role in an alliance with blacks when we, you know, we went through many of the uh, similar experiences. Yeah, it's so. the Passover story. I get, you know, a little queasy when you mentioned that there's no scientific evidence for the Exodus or Moses, because sometimes I hear that out of the mouths of anti-Semites, obviously not you. But do you know what I mean? Is do you believe Moses existed, or do you think that's just a fable? It's probably just a fable, but it doesn't matter to me. I mean, the idea that the stories are brilliant. I mean, just think of how good the stories are. You, you tell what stories last, right? And you know, the biblical stories, which I went to Sunday school every Sunday <laughs> and learned all about, and they're brilliant stories and. I'm fascinated, in fact, by excavation of biblical stories, which is not to say that there are a lot of biblical stories that have been shown, you know, that have been found and uh, and with excavations, and a lot right. of that in jail, obviously. But the Passover story, they've not found anything. There were Israelites in Egypt. That much is true. But the whole idea of coming back and conquering the city states and all that stuff they haven't found any real evidence of that and what about jesus is it the same or different it's exactly the same i mean i think that there seems to be some historical evidence that there was a guy named jesus but you know the stories it's the stories that matter and the messages and right and if, if there was a guy named jesus he believed in moses and that Moses story is at the heart of all the great religions. So 
It's not just yeah. the Jewish people. Every no, religion no. depends on Moses. Yes. And, you know, if you look at, I'm not an expert on religion or the Bible, but I'm, I'm interested in it. And I, I've read a good deal about it. And you find a lot of origin stories that are very similar among religions that are completely unrelated. I mean, unlike the three big ones. Isn't it funny that the tiny Jewish people, we get to be part of the big ones? I mean, <laughs> we, we were at the beginning. Right. We were, we were, we're grandfathered in. We, we were at the beginning. We are, we're, we're running a, a distant third, though, in, in numbers these days. But we were, Slightly we, behind. We were, we were number one in the beginning. Right. I have to figure your favorite biblical character would be Samson with the Samson. hair again. Samson did have the hair, and uh, I never had a Delilah, although my wife hated my long hair for our entire marriage. What? But... <laughs> and you never gave her the satisfaction of a trim? No, I got some trims. I got, I got trim for a wedding. Talk about your beautiful wife. My beautiful wife died not quite two years ago. I know she did, but what a love affair you guys had. How long did it last? We were married for 49 years. Wow. We met, we didn't meet, but we started dating right after my senior year in high school. Near the end of my senior year in high school, I was at McDonald's, which had just come to Virginia. And me and three friends were in McDonald's and it was my car, but somebody raced out and turned on the ignition to the car and was going to race away. So one of my friends jumped in the car just in time. One of my other friends jumped on the hood, and I jumped on the trunk. And as the, my friend David backed out and then hit the accelerator, I fell off the trunk and slammed my head into the concrete. Why? What were they serving at that McDonald's? <laughs> I know. We were completely stone sober. That's the sad part. That's the really sad part. So we were going to go to a movie, and I was sitting, we're in the car, and I've got my hand on my head. You know, it's really hurting. And uh, we're deciding whether I should go to the ER, whether we should just go to the movie. And I look at my hand, and it is covered in blood. I'm saying, I think maybe. The ER would be the right choice. So I go to the ER, and we have to, like, we know the cop's going to be there, so we have to, like, try to invent a story to say why, how this happened, and not say that we were driving in the car and I fell off the back of it, because that might get us in trouble. So we came up with, like, four different stories, none of which the cops believed. And my favorite part, though, is one of my friends went to my mother's house, to my house, to tell my mother and he tells her, Mike is a little cut up. <laughs> like, like I've been in a knife fight. You are you know? a cut up. But how does your wife get in the picture? This so here's the thing. So my 17th birthday happens while I'm in the hospital. I'm in the hospital for a week. Oh. And so we have, I get, have a birthday party. And about 20 kids sneak up into my room. And she is one of them. And she'd been dating a friend of mine, and she brought me a thing of fudge, like, a, you know, present there for being in the hospital. I'm one of these weird people who doesn't like fudge, too sweet. But I didn't say that to her, of course. 
so I just turned 17. She was 17. We were just about to graduate high school. And I asked her out for a date. And she says yes. So I never had nerve to ask her out for a date if she hadn't given me the fudge. So falling on my head and breaking it open was like one of the best things that ever happened to me. It was a pity party. Yeah. Oh, yeah, pity party. And, I mean, so this, our life began together, began July 4th, 1966, the year I graduated high school. We were at the Virginia Beach Dome, which seats about 4,000. I was not there anymore. Seated about 4,000 people. And I was on the second row, July 4th, 1966, with Susie, my date, and my later my wife, to see the Rolling Stones, second row, highlight of my youth. Oh, my gosh. That would be the highlight for a lot of people. And I July have to say, 4th. July 4th, July 4th 1966. I sometimes worried that I dreamt it all, you know. <laughs> so I, I checked it on. Of course, you can do you can find anything right. on the computer, right? So I googled their dates for their American tour in 1966. There it is, Virginia Beach, July 4th, 1966. And you were there with Susie. Did you guys see the Stones many more times during your 49-year marriage? We did see them many more times. <laughs> I think I saw them for like their first six American tours. And is Mick Jagger an inspiration? I have a troubadour on my show, and he's a huge Rolling Stones fan. He says, Craig, you got to watch the documentary. These guys show you how to approach older age. Am I right? (laughs) They do. I mean, the fact that Keith Richards has lived to an old age is like one of the great mysteries of our time. And they look good, and they still have long hair like you. They still have long hair. Mick may not look as good as he once did. He was beautiful when he was a young singer. So he was like the first androgynous. Oh, yes. David Bowie became more famous for that, but he was the first. He is some character that Mick Jagger, and they all stay in shape. They have a lot of energy. They can still play. They still play rock and roll. And they're a lot older than you. <laughs> they are older than me. Not that much older, but yes, they are older. You're still playing. You're playing twice a week at the Colorado Sun. I'm privileged to write every other week, and that's plenty for me with my busy law practice. But let's talk about your career in journalism. It is so multifaceted. Tell us, and I know you can't do anything that quick except on deadline, but can you (laughs) give us a quick summary of all the places you've worked? Yes, I can tell you. It's not that many places. I got my first job as a summer intern at the Newport News Times Herald because where we were living and my parents knew somebody there. My father knew people there. So I got this job as a summer intern in the sports department. And I worked there every summer during college. And when I graduated college, I needed to stay home because my dad was still, he was really, really sick at that point. So I needed to be there to help. So I got my first job, and this is the miracle of miracles. So I'm 21 years old. I'm 21 years old, and the only major league sport that's ever been in Virginia started that year, the Virginia Squires, the old American Basketball Association. And they signed me to cover the Squires. 
21 years old, no experience. What just a out great of gig. Did you like basketball? I love basketball. I love basketball and baseball, my two favorite sports. So I traveled the country covering this basketball team. It was like I could not imagine having more fun than that. And Chopper Travellini, who was famously Denver Nuggets trainer for many, many years, he was a Virginia Squires trainer at the time. And on my very first trip, my very first trip, I've been on one airplane ride before this. My very first trip was a charter trip from Norfolk, Virginia to Boone, North Carolina for an exhibition game against the Carolina Cougars. We were there for one night. I bring my suitcase. My suitcase, I have one suitcase, which is the, like the huge trunk kind of suitcase that you have at college. Right. I have, that's the only suitcase I have. Nice so I got this, night bag. Way to go. Right. <laughs> so I've got this giant suitcase. We're going for one night. I have in there like, you know, a change of underwear and toothbrush or something, right? I dressed even worse then than I do now. So going on the plane, I am taking my suitcase up the stairs of the plane to the plane because I have no idea that you check luggage. I'm 21 years old. I've been on one plane before in my life. And I think that you're going to just throw the suitcase up like you do on a bus. <laughs> so the players all are all laughing at me. Rookie, rookie. And Chopper takes the suitcase from me, takes me back downstairs, shows me how to check my luggage. So that was my first trip with the Squires. Charlie Scott was the star player. And the next year, Julius Irving came to play we were, the, we were we were the same age and became very close friends and we're friends to this day wow what a character who else was on that team was daddy taylor on that team daddy taylor absolutely daddy taylor who i went to see look up like the first day i moved to denver the first week i moved to denver daddy and i had great times together when uh, when i covered the squires i covered the squires for uh, seven years for two newspapers and went to from Newport News to the Virginia Pilot in Norfolk. And a quick story, I moved from the Virginia Pilot to the LA Times. Huge jump in my life, changed my career all around. So I'm, I'm in my 20s. And there used to be, as you know, a Washington Post, LA Times news service. And all of the papers that got that news service, including Dream Pilot, they used to take those papers to the newspaper and the various editors would clip out stuff to look for stories, for national stories. No internet, no computers. So they would look for national stories to do by clipping out stories. So somebody read one of my stories, liked it, and started keeping track of my stories for like a year. And one day I just got a phone call from the LA Times saying, if you're interested, we'd like you to come out and for an interview. And I went to the LA Times to cover the Dodgers. Oh my gosh. And what a sports department. The legendary Jim Murray, right there. Legendary Jim Murray, yes. That was one of the great sport, sports clubs of all time. And I stayed there for seven years. And being the way that I am, I let my last two years, I was writing national sports features and national news features. So I got 
started in news at the LA Times where I was still doing sports and I wanted to be a sports columnist before I was left sports. That was the one thing I wanted to do. So I left the LA Times to go to the Baltimore Sun to be a sports columnist. I was a sports columnist there for six years, then I became a news columnist there for six years. And I got into a huge feud with the editor of my newspaper in Baltimore. So I picked out 10 cities where I'd want to live. And I sent out resumes or called people I knew at the newspapers in those 10 cities. And Denver was one of those 10 cities. So I got offers right away from the Rocky and from the Portland Oregonian. I was looking for either a news column or a sports column. And Oregonian offered me a news column and the Rocky offered me a sports column. But I felt Portland was, I love Portland as a city, but it's its remote. And I felt like it just, I'd be out of the mainstream. So I came to Denver because they had a newspaper war. It's a great place to live. What year was that that you arrived? That was 1997. But I didn't want to stay a sports columnist. I mean, my plan was to cover sports for a few years, then get to be a news columnist. And that's what happened, thanks to uh, my editor, John Temple. And I'll tell you a brief story about how my life changed, how I changed newspapers in journalism in Colorado. So I come to Denver. I was sports columnist for two and a half years. The Broncos win two Super Bowls while I'm sports columnist. So pretty good timing. Wait a minute. And I go to the Olympics in Australia. And as soon as I come back from the Olympics, I'm going to start my news column. So I start my news column, and the Bush-Gore overtime election happens. Right. And I go to John Temple and say, look, as a sports columnist, you send me to the World Series without a Denver team being in it. You send me to the Masters. You send me to the Final Four. You send me to the World Series, not because there's local teams there, although there have been a couple of Super Bowls, but because, you know, People wanted to read my take on these things. That was your, that's why you sent me there. So I said, what's the difference between that and sending me off to cover the biggest news story everybody's talking about? So I went to Florida, and I was there for three of the five weeks of the uh, triple overtime election. My gosh. See, there's your good you know, legal <laughs> skills, persuading John Temple you had to go, and then you're following... Your DNA that requires you to go to Florida as if you're getting older as a Jewish guy. And and, and and so not only so I'm on there, we don't have a national news editor at the Rocky Mountain News. And this is pre-internet. <laughs> so as I'm on the road, my mother, who was a who was also living in Miami Beach then and was a twenty-four hour CNN viewer. And the story, if you remember, took place in Palm Beach. It took place in Tallahassee. It took place in Lauderdale. So, you know, where was I going to be? I just had a car and I had to move around the, the state, right? So I would be on the phone with her, asking her for updates on you know, where the news was so to where I should be. So she was like my uh, traveling secretary. She must have loved that. 
Oh, she did. She did. She died on that for years. You mean in her building in Miami Beach? She would retell this story and live on it. Yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. So I got this gig where I, you know, traveled all over the world covering news for the Rocky Mountain News. And the beautiful thing about doing that for a tabloid was that, you know, you could put on the front page Mike Litwin in Tallahassee, Mike Litwin in Cairo, Mike Litwin in London. So, you know, the horror of 9-11, I was on the East Coast for most of the first six months. And I pitched this idea just before Thanksgiving that I should go around the Arab world and try to explain I remember that. How the two sides see the world so differently, right? And I, so I did, I went on this like uh, six week tour, five week tour. It was the hot Arab world, yeah. And uh, it was, you know, life changing. Oh, I interviewed terrorists. I, you know, so I became at the Rocky Mountain News like this one person national, international bureau. And I covered. Whatever was important to cover, it was the best job I ever had. And I thank John Temple, my editor, for allowing me to do that. I was the last person for whom the newspaper war did any good for because the Denver Post would periodically try to hire me. And I would periodically get a big raise. (laughs) Periodically get a very nice raise. And in the newspaper world, I was like a one percenter, you know, <laughs> in the newspaper world, not very different from the real world. And I had a guarantee for how many days I could spend on the road. And it came down to the end where Barack Obama was elected that year. The convention was in Denver, you remember? Do I ever. I got to broadcast live and John Temple yeah. hired me to write for the Barack Obama side. And Dan Kaplan's to write as well. And there were special features. Yes, I do remember that. So for 18 months, for the 18 months of that election, starting with, of course, the Obama-Clinton primary, the never-ending Obama-Clinton primary, for 18 months, I was on a road for, I think, about nine months of that. So again, I took my wife with me. We, you know, she went with me everywhere, and um, it was a front seat to American history. Yes, I'm one of the luckiest guys ever. And how much mileage and hotel points did you accumulate? <laughs> Let's just say this: that I am a two million mile American Airlines flyer. I'm a, a premier United Airlines. Flyer, and I'm a lifetime platinum Marriott. And I'm telling you, you're. <laughs> it's time to get back on a plane. It's okay, Mike. You can do it because no, I'm I'm I plan too soon. Actually, so I covered Wimbledon. I covered. I've covered every sporting event there was to cover. I used to go to Wimbledon every summer. I used to go to Wimbledon every summer. As with frequent flyer miles, I would take my family with me to uh, Wimbledon, and um, we would vacation in Europe after that. Okay, I'm a big sports fan. What is the one event my boys and I should go see? I'll take my wife, too. But what is the, Craig, you got to do this. Is it Wimbledon? What is the best event? Wimbledon's a great event. The Masters? Is it at the Olympics? 
Yeah, the Olympics is the premier event. I mean, the Olympics is the greatest event. And I've covered, let's see. And what was the most exciting event you ever covered in sports? The most exciting. The Broncos Super Bowls? As a game, what was the most exciting thing I ever covered? I mean, I was a Dodger fan, and I I covered five of their World Series. So, I mean, that was, but as a game, the best game that I ever covered was probably that Kentucky Duke, Leitner, Grant Hill to Leitner. That's probably the greatest game I ever covered. Gosh, it's exciting. And because of you, I follow you on social media. You said on Twitter, hey, you got to watch this 60-minute segment about Dave Kindred. I just did. It was fantastic. You must have known this guy from countless sporting events. But something about that piece really captured you. Describe it. When I was a sports columnist, and I was a sports columnist for, let's see, how many years? 11 years. And when you're a sports columnist, you travel to all the big sporting events every year. You do the Super Bowl, you do the World Series, you do the Masters, you do the Kentucky Derby, you do Final Four. You know, you do all of them. So you travel around the country, and the people who, in that small group, 20-some people, they're all traveling around the country, too. So they become part of a fraternity. And Dave became Dave Kindred, who was a legendary sports columnist, the most famous really at the Washington Post. We became close friends my first year covering Wimbledon. His wife was there, my wife was there, and there are about five or six wives of American sports writers there. So they teamed up and we all became part of a little family that went to, went to Wimbledon. When, when I first went there, it was it was like this huge perk that you got to go to Wimbledon. And very few Americans, very few Americans were there. So Dave and I became very close friends. Dave is a brilliant writer, a brilliant person. And he is retired. He's, let's see, he's 70. He said 79 on 60 Minutes. And he's just gone through some bad things, just like you have with the loss of your beautiful wife, Susie. His wife's stricken, yeah. His wife is basically in a coma. She's not quite comatose, but close to that. She had a stroke like five years ago, and she's been in a nursing home for a long time. He lost his grandson, just wrote a beautiful book about his his grandson. Lost to addiction, as I understand it. Lost right. to addiction, yeah. Terrible, mm-hmm. terrible thing. So he and his wife just before she got sick, moved back to where they grew up, which was in Atlanta, Illinois. It's like, as uh, Dave likes to say, the third largest Atlanta in America. And they met when they were in high school. And so they went back to this town, basically retired. He still writes a column, I think, for uh, Golf Digest. And so there's this hotshot girls basketball team that wins all the time. And Everybody in town goes to their games. So Dave started going to their games and he started writing little bits and pieces of it. And he finally went to the coach and said, Hey, I'd like to start writing daily pieces about your games. So the coach had 
no idea who Dave Kinder was and looked him up on the internet, found out he's like one of the most famous war fighters ever and says, sure. And so he's been writing stories about the Lady Potters. I can't remember the name of the high school, but they were Lady Potters for five or six years now. And when the coronavirus hit and there was no Lady Potters to write about, he started writing a daily coronavirus journal. He started writing a journal, everyday journal about the about his life and the coronavirus. And it's usually about four or five hundred words and he's got a huge following of people reading that because he's a great writer for one thing and it's the insights are funny and smart about making our way through this terrible time. So yeah, so 60 Minutes somehow picked up on this and they did a like a he says I guess 13 minutes I think he said he did like about 12 hours of interviews for for, the, for 13 minutes. You know how TV works. Right. And, uh, <laughs> but it came out great. I recommend everybody take a look at it. I did because of you. I had missed it originally, but it was a great story. Uplifting. Yeah, very uplifting. And yeah, I was so glad for him because, you know, it's a... He's got lots of uh, recognition in his life, but you're 79 years old. It's sort of like, you know, it's like, uh, as he told me, he said, you know, it's like being at your own funeral. You get all these people saying these wonderful things about you, and you don't normally get that necessarily when you're alive. That's true. I grew up a jock here in Denver. I've always loved sports, but I grew to a point where I didn't like to listen to sports talk because it's always the same thing. And to me, the real world is more important. And you have bounced between the sports world and the real world. What's your conclusion? What world is the better world to inhabit, the sports world or the real world? Well, I I mean, I've chosen the real world. I, I did the sports world until I was... What's the biblical line about putting away the toys? You know, when you become when you become a man, and uh, the sports world was fun. I had a lot of fun covering it, but you know, I always, always deeply cared about the real world and the political world. And that's where my main interest has always been. So, I, part of the re- I stayed in the sports world for as long as I did because it just took off for me, and it was like I couldn't. <laughs> my two-year-old uh, grandson just walked That's in the fine. Door. Yeah, Grandpa's working, honey. You go, you go back outside and play, okay? I have my almost three-year-old grandson and my just-turned six-year-old grandson. Kennel Horry, that's great. Yeah. My, okay, you're gonna close the door. <laughs> I have to close the door. Those two have, uh, they got me through the coronavirus. Well, let me diagnose you a little bit because I've followed you and uh, we've known each other. Seems to me that your transition to politics and real world coverage was good because you have a worldview and it's kind of a liberal worldview. And I envy it a little bit because your progressive, your liberal point of view, it kind of guides you. I'm an independent. I've been in the middle, but with Donald Trump, I stopped being in the middle because I saw the danger of the guy probably way after I should have. 
But I find myself admiring liberals like you, people who realized not just that Donald Trump was a bad guy, but that this whole Republican Party that has gotten in bed with him, it's a bad organization. Am I on the right path diagnosing you, Mike Ledwin? Yes. I mean, (laughs) I was raised in a liberal family who was part of who I always was. I grew up, I was in college in the 60s, you know, uh, so I was a 60s kid. I started working for an alternative newspaper at the, when I was in college, went to University of Virginia, which is close to Washington. So I was at all the Washington demonstrations. And so that all became, you know, very much a part of my life. So if I'd walked into the Times Herald and gotten a job as an intern. If I'd gotten a job in the news department as an intern, I probably never would have been a sports writer. I'm grateful that I was a sports writer, but you know, it was a fluke. They had an opening in the sports department. They asked me if I liked sports. I said I did, and there I was in the sports department. So that's it became like uh, the first. Well, it used to be half. Now it's more like a third of my career, and. Um, It wouldn't have happened otherwise. But yes, you know, what's happened right now, it's the worst thing that's happened in a major political party since McCarthyism. And the fact that Republicans are so scared of their base that they refuse to lead lead the base away from Donald Trump, you know, just for political gain at the beginning. And now they're stuck with him. And the fact that people didn't stand up in the way that people did stand to McCarthy and people, you know, stood up to Nixon in the end. And the fact that so few Republicans have is it's uh, history will not smile on them. The historians will be writing about Trump for 100 years and the complicity of the Republican Party will be written about just as long. And it's going to take them a long long time to recover from from this, I believe. I think so. And it's clarifying for a guy like me. It's what side are you on? Are you on the side of the big lie and Donald Trump or are you on the right side? Because to me, that's how politics breaks down right now. It does. It does. I mean, if you look what happened January 6th, right? So there's the insurrection on January 6th. So a terrible thing. But the House representatives came back that night and voted on whether to accept the electors as presented to them. And, you know, very few, I mean, I don't know, a few few people may have thought that the election was rigged, but 95% of the people did not. I mean, I'm talking about these congressmen. Right. And 170 of them voted not to accept the electors. On the same day that Donald Trump inspired an insurrection at our nation's capital, and we saw on the day that we're talking here that you know that somebody was just killed by uh, some crazy person ramming into the right. Yeah, as, and, as we taped this on Friday afternoon, yeah, the Michiganers were out, but we've always had Michiganers, but not no, at the top level. Them. We've always had them, but we we had what we haven't always had is people spurring them on right. from the highest. Now I, I can remember back 
and this was not this was not so much Republican uh, people. But this was this was right wing radio was spurring on the before Oklahoma City, right? I mean, you know, that was the time of the jackbooted thugs. Sure, Ruby Ridge, Waco. It was being encouraged by right wing radio. No right doubt about radio. it. Yeah, and when and when that stuff happened, there was some backing off for a while, but not not for long enough. I'm not going to sit here and blame Tucker, you know, for for his TV show or Hannity. That, that's they would do, that's what they do, right? I mean, I don't have to agree with it, but I understand that a lot of it is shtick. But these are politicians; people elected to serve the people who are doing the country such a grave disservice. It's interesting that uh, I see the latest opinion polls have Joe Biden with the country is at 50% now for going in the right direction. We haven't had that in America since our very first days of the Obama presidency, and that soon dipped into the 30s. But 50% think the country's going in the right direction. That's a huge thing, I believe. And I was not a fan of the Biden campaign when he ran in the Democratic primary. I was sort of disappointed that Democrats ended up having to choose between two old white guys when the party is changing so dramatically. But old Joe is doing pretty good. They've responded to Biden because I think because he's the anti-Trump. Yes. I think that's been his appeal. It's hard to find anybody less like Trump in America. I'm just a little surprised that you hold Tucker Carlson blameless, maybe the late Rush Limbaugh. I don't hold them blameless. What I'm saying is they're not elected officials. Right. There's a difference. So you expect it from them. Right. That's what they do. If Tucker Carlson weren't on Fox, they'd have somebody else on Fox. You know, it's I, I do not hold them blameless. I, I blame them all the time. And I think Tucker Carlson particularly is a smart guy who knows exactly exactly what he's doing. So I, you know, I don't know if Hannity is... Well, let's talk local. You used to be a regular on Peter Boyles. I was, too. Yes. I've reflected on what talk radio is all about. And Denver has a vibrant talk radio scene. Not as much anymore, but that's a dynamic that I think has been destructive for America. What used to be an amusing place has become just kind of a den of bigots and grievance. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what happened to Peter. I really don't know what happened to him. Like you, I was on his show all the time. We had great fun on his show. We talked about a lot of interesting stuff. He's, he's an interesting guy. He's smart, knowledgeable. And he turned on me. I mean, he just turned on me on a dime and just started slashing, getting into all this conspiracy, weird conspiracy stuff that I was somehow part of conspiracies. I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, part of what happened with him is he, he's great pals with Tancredo, and Tancredo is my whipping boy, so I, I understand that was part of what happened. But um, I got that. And part of his appeal to me was he was on Salem, which was a Christian station, but he used to brag about not being a Christian. I thought, well, that's interesting, the way he stands up. Made room for a guy like me because I'm obviously not a Christian. He also right. entertained different points of view, but his appeal was he would castigate politicians on all sides except for his good buddy Tancredo. But then Donald Trump 
raised his hand and said, I'm going to run. And Boyle said, that's my guy. Maybe because he looked in the mirror and saw the same guy, you know, talking about Obama not being born in America, not eligible, the same bullshit, you know, the same, what did Dean Singleton describe it? A carnival barker like Trump, full of crap, always hustling a dollar. And it is for money. And I'll tell you this guy now, because he's not stupid. He realizes the big lie. And when I say the big lie, I'm talking Third Reich kind of big lie. And I bet you are too. As Jewish people, we don't say it very often, but we can see how destructive this lie about a big rigged election would be, how it could lead to violence. And it has. But Boyles, he rejected the big lie, but now he's back in bed with the guys who perpetrated. So it just shows me that the guy's a sellout and he does it for money. He doesn't really have convictions. He's in it for the ad revenue. And to me, it's bullshit and it's destructive of our society. So there I said it. What's your reaction? So I agree with that. I mean, talk radio was an important media in Colorado. It's not in nearly the same way that it was. And that's not just in Colorado. But, you know, this show that you guys had when it was when it was rolling, I mean, you guys played a key role in, in how the conversation on politics was in Denver. And, of course, Mike Rosen, for all of his problems, he, he was the same thing. And so did Boyle. So, I mean, those three shows were really important in the conversation about politics in Denver. You know, that's, I would also say, you know, that there are no columnists left, right? I mean, right. <laughs> you know, there, there used to be, we used to be full flush with columnists, and the columnists, of course, would be the same way. And, of course, you know, the talk radio shows would have the columnists on, and that was all, they'd all be part of the, part of the same thing. And you, you know, that was, uh, it, it enhanced. Right. But how can you really debate the big lie? And how can you debate Donald Trump? You don't see it anymore because he is so divisive. And the guy was deliberately divisive. And how dangerous is it, Mike Ledwin? Because it's not over. The Republican Party still kowtows to him. And am I right? Maybe it's just me to use the Third Reich, capital B, big, capital L, lie. But is it that serious in your mind? There's a reason why you don't compare anything to the Holocaust, right? But as for the big lie, yeah, that's definitely part of the same kind of culture. And yeah, is it dangerous? Absolutely, it's dangerous. And is it still there? Yeah. So here we are. I, I wrote my column for Sunday is about Derek Chauvin trial and the sort of crossroads and race for at again. And, but this thing is happening at the same time as the Republican parties across America are installing these voter suppression laws. I saw that the that uh, Major League Baseball just pulled a all-star game out of, uh, out nice. of Atlanta, which is a tremendous thing. I loved what Joe Biden said. This isn't Jim Crow. It's Jim Eagle. We've got to stop this. <laughs> right. So this thing is happening at the same time. What's happening in the state legislatures, it's not like old-time racism. It's not when, when, I was a, when I was very, very young, you couldn't actually, in the South, a black and a white person couldn't play checkers in the Deep South in a public square. You know, it's not that. It's not apartheid. We used to have apartheid in, in the southern part of America. It's not that. It is voter suppression because 
because the black votes in Georgia were the reason that Joe Biden beat Donald Trump. And they're the reason that, that Ossoff and Warlock are the senators in Georgia. So that's why you're seeing this voter suppression, why they're trying to stop black people from voting. And it's funny. I think this not so funny, funny, but it's I, I think what has happened over these last few years, particularly, is that as you've seen a huge backlash in the black community, which has voted in record numbers, I think will continue to vote in record numbers because people are trying to stop them from voting. And there's a history. Yeah, obviously, there's a there's a long history in being denied the vote. And I think that people trying to suppress the vote simply encourages encourages people whom you're trying to suppress to vote. So if they want to take away, you know, Sunday voting. But the worst part of that law was that the Republican legislature gets to override local officials yes. just the way Donald Trump had it fixed. I think Donald Trump should be arrested for that call he made to Georgia. I think he should be arrested for what he did to instigate January 6th. I'm a hardliner, but I would prosecute that case. So my feelings are on record about this. But I think the stuff in Georgia is clear and obvious. Yes. Where encouragement to riot begins and ends is a really difficult complex kind of, i mean i'll tell you you know this you know it's it's not it's not easy law it's really difficult law and it's incitement to riot is a it's a it's a hard thing it's a hard thing to prosecute and, and it should be i believe but what he did in georgia that stuff is clearly obvious against the law i mean he broke the law in his trying to intimidate public officials I would just say this. It is hard to prove inciting a riot, but when you couple it with his lack of action while the riot was going on, it yeah, makes I, well, case. I think he's guilty. Right. <laughs> I'm not saying he's not guilty, but I'm saying getting the case legally is a, is a I mean, that's something you, you're, you know. No, no I've got you. I think it's beautiful. I'm, I'm a, again thinking, dang, why didn't I think of it? Because I can't wait to read your column comes out every Sunday morning. You also write on Tuesdays for the Colorado Sun. But the way you're going to tie the big lie into Derek Chauvin and this voter suppression, I do think they all kind of run together. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the next generation is going to be better, Mike. Here you have your grandkids there. It's Passover. Let's end on a happy note. Don't you think that the younger generation is going to be done with bigotry and racism to a degree that our generation never accomplished. I, I hope so. But I, I grew up in the 60s and we thought the world was going to change. Much of the world did change, right? I mean, all these, there were civil rights laws passed. There were women's rights laws passed. There were disabled rights laws passed. There was a huge change legally in discrimination in America during that period. Right. And this is just the last gasp. Look how Republican numbers are going down. Don't you see it? The Republican no, Party I, I, is finished. It. And, I, and I do think that young people have a completely different concept of discrimination than, than our generation does, than generation after us does. I'm definitely hopeful about that. My uh, nephew is running for the House of Delegates in Virginia. So that's pretty exciting for, for our family. First politician. Well, I'm hopeful this will not be our last podcast together. 
I think it's great. Next interview, I'm going to ask you how Patty Taylor was able to play basketball with his eyes closed because I could not <laughs> see that his eyes were open. And I want to find out more about Dr. J, who was in his prime, which was in the ABA, one of the greatest athletes ever, ever. Ever, yes. By the time he got to the NBA, his knees were right. uh, giving him trouble. And when people... The famous, famous uh, uh, shot in, against the Lakers in the in the NBA Finals, where it goes up and under around Kareem, and th- I saw that play every day, every game in the ABA. And I saw it too because it <laughs> defeated the Denver Nuggets in our only he chance did. at a championship. Boy, he that did. was exciting! Seventy-six. Of course, the the seventy-six All Star game. I was there for that. Oh man, you've been everywhere, man. I hope you'll come back. We'll read you I in will. the Colorado Sun, Mike Litwin. It's great to catch up. Happy Passover! Happy Thanks Passover for being for part of our special Passover podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Wow, it's been almost 40 years that I've been a lawyer, graduated CU Law in 1981, and began immediately. I am now with the law firm of Springer and Steinberg. Jeff Springer, a renowned civil attorney, one of the best in America. Harvey Steinberg, preeminent criminal defense attorney. We do it all at Springer and Steinberg, way over a dozen lawyers. If you need legal help, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig. We can deal with your legal situation and make it better. Thank you. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Hi, Craig. Troubadour, happy Passover. Hi, Craig. Happy Passover. You had a wonderful Seder, and thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming over. And now I speak to you. Are you in Boulder? Are you doing a recording session? I am in in Boulder recording as we speak. We're taking a little break. I love that. It's perfect for the song. It's perfect for Passover, which is about rejuvenation, springtime. Take the blows, get back up. And what did I tell you on our walk this week? I declared the pandemic over. Do you agree? I do agree. I do agree. And that was great to hear coming out of your mouth because we've walked for so many months now at distance. I've seen that palm stretched out telling me to keep my distance. At at some points telling me 30 feet was required. And um, it's nice that the palm is down. The palm is down, but old habits die hard. We are all getting used to a new world, but I was at Coors Field and it felt kind of normal. Must have been fantastic. I'm sorry I missed it. Well, I'm sorry I missed that Rolling Stones concert when they came through town because I just had Mike Litwin on and he saw the Stones with his bride-to-be July 4th, 1966 in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Wow. That's amazing. I cited you. You, you They've got some staying power, Craig. (laughs) What is that documentary you recommend to everybody? Oh, the documentary I recommend, it's called Ole, Ole, Ole. It's about the Rolling Stones tour through Latin America, uh, culminating in Cuba, which was, it was amazing that they pulled it off. There was kind of a little 
a little uh, detente going on. This was during the Obama uh, administration, and he was he was making uh, inroads with with Cuba, and, and things were cool were uh, warming up a little between the two countries. So they managed to. Well, I shouldn't say you know this is of course this is England, but um, they're the Brits. But um, still, the fact that Cuba would invite a foreign band over to play it was really uh, groundbreaking. It's like Billy Joel going to Russia, and look how well we all get along now. Vlad Putin, America's best friend. No, it's tough, but music is a bridge, and you're building a bridge up there in Boulder right now, and that community is resilient. There's more violence in the nation's capital today. But you know what? It's ordinary America. We've got to make it better. We're on the rebound. Tell us about this song because it's a little different. It is a little different. It's sad. You know, I, I when I played it for my buddy T, he thought it was, he called it country. I didn't really think of it, but I, it is kind of a, it's, it's kind of a, it's a different take on a love song where two people are getting together, both of them coming out of failed relationships. And they're basically saying, let's keep our expectations low. They're saying we're on the rebound anyway. You know, when people, when people refer to a relationship being on the rebound, it's one that is usually um, not long for this world, right? Right. But yet rebound is one of the most important words in life, certainly in basketball. You can't win without rebounding, but it's a metaphor. Everybody's going to get knocked down. You got to get back up. We were slaves and to Pharaoh in Egypt, and we got back up with God's help. But I got to tell you, having you at our Seder was fantastic, and you are always topping me. Right after we did <laughs> no. the 10 plagues, the Dom, Sephardia, Kingdom, and then I added Trump, and without missing a beat, you added COVID. That's right. That's right. The two new plagues. <laughs> yes, we're up to twelve now, <laughs> and we're over. And we're over both of them. And I think we're through the Red Sea. And I think yeah, the mana yeah. is starting to fall. I think the whole world is going to start, or at least America. God knows what's happening elsewhere. But spring has sprung. Everybody is out doing things. People are getting vaccinated at a huge and beautiful pace. I hope we're on the rebound. What do you say, Troubadour? Well, Craig, I appreciate the call. The, the dinner was, thank you, Trish. Thank you, Trish, for the delicious brisket and no, soup called, and everything. It's called Trishkit. Trishkit. Thank you for my Trishkit. It was really fun being with your family. And uh, kind of kind of it was an old world kind of Seder. I appreciate it. Uh, reminded me of some of my, my early ones with, with, my, with my grandparents and stuff. Um, a lot of school. Hebrew. I'm I like that. Yeah, we, I like that. We do yeah. as much Hebrew as I can read, which is not yep. that much, but I can remember a lot of things from my youth. And I will remember having you over, Dave, Lisa Gunder. She brightened oh, our table. Last time. Next time in Jerusalem. All right. The Rebound by Dave Gunders. Thank you, True Thank you, Craig. Now I don't mind You're not taking a taxi home No, I'll be there when you arrive Take your time 
miss your flight Cause we'll find our own wings tonight That's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide 
for my kids' education, my grandchild's education. And aren't there some tax benefits to doing it certain ways, not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he, how much he's worth now. You know, a lot. Well, let's say he's got $2 billion and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's going to be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes. But if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael, and I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done and they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my, my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Dan Recht. Hi, Craig. How are you? Good. Welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's been too long. How are it you? Has. I'm fine, thank you. We speak after the Rockies had a great opening day victory. I was privileged to attend. You are such a sports fanatic, and it just felt like things are getting back to normal. What about your world? My world is wonderful and has changed dramatically. So I think you know, as of January 1st, I retired from the private practice of law. My law firm is going on, and I still have my name on the door, but I'm only now doing nonprofit pro bono work. Oh, come on. This is just a rash Passover decision. Happy Passover, <laughs> by the way. But what are Happy you doing? Passover you're to too you. young. You're in your zenith. You're in your prime. What are you doing? I'm fooling myself into thinking that I'm going out on top. And I'm delighted to feel that way, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But yes, that's what I'm doing. I'm leaving the private practice of law and pursuing other passions, sort of pent-up passions I've had for a number of years, including grandchildren and travel. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I do master's bicycle racing. Wow. 
and now I'm going to make time for all of these things. My goodness. I did not know that about you. I know you're quite the sportsman, but let's just go back since you are committed to this decision. And I'm glad to know you are going to still stay active as a lawyer. You are just going to dedicate your efforts to things that interest you as opposed to taking on new clients all the time. That's right. And only, well, I think only nonprofit organizations. So I'm not taking any fees and I'm choosing which organizations I want to work with and for. And the primary one currently and has been for decades is the ACLU of Colorado, which I'm very committed to and have been in a leadership position for decades. Let's swing back to that. But first, tell everybody, since there's a capstone, maybe we can do a bit of the definitive Dan Recht interview because you are going out at the top of the Denver legal world. I admire that greatly. But tell us how you got there. Tell us about your upbringing, how you decided to be a lawyer, and whether it's all been worthwhile. Okay, only because you asked, and it's a story I love to tell, so I will. My parents and my family is Jewish, and my parents were very active liberals in the 50s and 60s in the civil rights movement in Milwaukee and instilled in us children, I was one of five, a sense of responsibility for doing the right thing, what Jews call tikkun olam, and I I internalized that, and I have believed it since I was a young person, and I acted on it. So in undergraduate school, I was in the first wave of environmental activists, actually the very first degree out of CU called Environmental Studies, I was in the first graduating class of that major. Class of what year? That was 76. I graduated from CU undergrad in 76. Beautiful. The bicentennial year. The election of Jimmy Carter. Yeah, it was a pretty monumental time, you know, and the early 70s were pretty crazy, as you know. Watergate. But I stuck with it and graduated. Is that what brought you to Colorado, the university? Yes, although I had been here like many people beforehand doing mountaineering things, even before I went to CU. So in my late teens, I had come out here for backpacking trips and such. CU Boulder, 76, you graduate. Did you know you were going to pursue a law degree? I didn't quite know that at that point. I was thinking of that as an option. And when I thought about it, interestingly, I thought about being an environmental activist lawyer, like a Sierra Club lawyer, a a wilderness lawyer, or, you know, a clean air lawyer, or working for the EPA, which had a whole staff of lawyers enforcing environmental regulations. But those were the days of Reagan. Reagan gutted the EPA, from my perspective, and made it very much more difficult to get environmental activist jobs. That's why I went to law school. But in law school, I became very interested in constitutional law. Now, where did you go to law school? Boston College. Why not see you lie? It had everything you wanted, David Kennedy. I know. It's an environmental law professor extraordinaire, but... 
Boston College um, for a Jewish boy? I know that? it's a Jesuit school, although interestingly, a large percentage of the Catholic schools faculty or the law school's faculty were also Jewish. Well, here's how that came about. It wasn't a very sophisticated decision. Got married very early, and I said to my then young wife, look, I want to go to law school. You pick the city. I'll get into the best one I can in that city. It was as unsophisticated as that. And she said, Boston would be fun. And I um, didn't get into Harvard. And the second best law school then, and I think still now maybe, is Boston College out of about seven law schools. Wow. Was it fun? Law school? Yes, in Boston. Oh, it was fun living in Boston for sure. I wasn't a huge fan of law school, no. I looked forward to, you know, being in the trenches, being a trial lawyer. That's what I wanted to do. And did you realize Colorado was the place you wanted to be? Yeah, I always did. My wife was from Colorado, and so I think we always planned on coming back here and did. So what was your first job out here? The one thing I know about you, because you started before me, and now you're quitting before me, but <laughs> you're a Denver lawyer. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's one thing to be a Colorado lawyer, but you've always centered your practice right in Denver, Colorado. Am I correct? You are. My first job of any like significance to my life quickly happened. Well, I had a, a, an honorary clerkship with a judge in Boston, which was, you know, quite the honor. And, and I did that for actually two years. And then when I came here, in short order, I was a young public defender. And actually, it was the metro area, but I started my first cases, Craig, I don't know, I, we didn't know each other way back then. It was in Brighton. So, you know, I lived in Park Hill then, and I do now, and I commuted to Brighton, which isn't a very long commute. And what did I know about Brighton? I was a Denver prosecutor. I just exactly. went to the city and county building every day. <laughs> right, exactly right. So how long were you a public defender? I was a public defender for somewhere around six years, long enough to have, like you, tried many homicide cases from the defense perspective, of course, and tried a lot of jury trials, a lot of them, as did you, and like to think I was quite good at it and wanted to keep doing it and, oh, and resisted the temptation to go to a big corporate law firm. And I did have offers to do such things. Well, let's things. back up a little bit, because I hear a little justified braggadocio, and you are much more accomplished as a criminal defense attorney than just about anybody around. And it sounds to me like you figured out you're pretty good at this in Adams County, because you probably got some not guilties that maybe other lawyers could not have gotten or hung juries, whatever. And what are you good at? Would you say... It's picking apart a prosecutor's case. Is it wearing them down? Is it saying, what about reasonable doubt? Isn't that the biggest weapon a defense attorney has beyond a reasonable doubt? What a concept. That's huge. It is huge. And I certainly relied on it. And if 
we want to get into the weeds on this, which I think is interesting. Please. It all comes down to voir dire, right? I mean, I, it, with modesty aside, I think I was very good at voir dire and very good at connecting with jurors. And this is important because you just asked me what maybe I was the best at or what I was good at. And I was good at talking to jurors as human beings and not with lawyer talk. And my philosophy was get the jury to trust you, get the jury to trust you, to see that you aren't some bad guy defense attorney and that you really are seeking out justice. And then during the course of the trial, hopefully you will demonstrate through your body language and your interaction with your client that you trust your client And that was the formula, really. I mean, it was way more sophisticated, of course, but it was have the jury trust you by the end of voir dire and have the jury see um, by the end of the trial that I trust my client and hopefully they put it together and think, well, he is a trustworthy guy. He trusts his client. Maybe we should give him and his client the benefit of the doubt, which they're supposed to do anyway. But if they don't like the lawyers, often they won't do that. So there's a simple formula for why I think I want a whole lot of jury trials. Oh, my goodness. It's a good thing that you stayed in Adams County, because if we would have gone against each other, (laughs) this was my forte. I tried to win the case in voir dire and in opening statement. But you know why my jury selection would beat yours, other than the fact that I, too, like to lecture about it. But you know why it would have been unfair, me against you? Because you're that much taller than me. No, it's because I got to go first. (laughs) Yes, you did. Right. You got to go first and you got to go last. Oh, boy, right. It's not fair because all those tricks I used to tell people, I still do, young lawyers, really what you're trying to do in jury selection and judges don't like it, but you're trying to sell yourself. You're trying to make a bond between you and the prospective jurors. You're trying to sell your case in subtle ways. And I got pretty good at it. And then more than anything, you try to find good customers for what you're selling. You can tell if a person likes you, make them laugh. You can tell the same jokes because it's a fresh audience every time. I had some killer one-liners, and if I make them laugh, and then I make them think. So when Dan Reck gets up there, they already like me. Maybe they'll like him, and that would be a beautiful thing because then maybe they'll decide the case on the evidence. But realistically, juries often decide cases on which lawyer they like the best. Wouldn't you agree? I do think so. I mean, it isn't solely on that. That would be unfair to the jury process, which I believe in strongly. But yes, I think there is an art to jury selection. I think there is obviously a very sophisticated art to trying cases. And a lot of it has to do, you and I are agreeing, with getting along with the jury and having them like you and trust you. Absolutely. Right. Make a friendship. And then in closing argument, they kind of know that the friendship is on the line right here. You know, I'm really passionate about this. And I can tell you are, Dan, and you wrap your client in it. And I do some criminal defense work. And credibility is everything. And 
you are well regarded throughout Colorado. That's why you've been called on to be a media analyst. Tell everybody about your adventures working with the media and why you like doing that. Yeah, I will. And I think it's the same skill set, Craig. I think it's the ability to talk to a lay jury in Vaudeer has a lot to do with being able to talk like a human being and not like a lawyer. You have to like make noise like a person and not like a corporate lawyer. And you have to simplify things. I don't mean dumb it down. I mean injury selection, make the complicated law understandable to the average person sitting on the jury. Well, it's the very same thing when you do press commentary, from my perspective. The art to it is to take difficult legal concepts and express them in a way that non-lawyers understand. It's a different thing if you're giving a lecture to lawyers or or uh, law students, but when you're talking to the general public or when you're on TV or you know on the radio talking to lay people, you need to have them understand these difficult concepts in, in more simple terms. And I think those skills are related, and those are things I'm good at. And the other thing is you have to have some show-up in you, and most trial lawyers do. They don't force you to go in front of the cameras, but I liked it, and I enjoy being able to express myself. And your voyage through the law, now that you're talking about retirement, would you recommend it to people? Has it been uh, a great battlefield? Do you regard it as a battlefield? How do you look at it in retrospect now? Well, maybe if you've had the same experience. Many, many corporate lawyers that I know and like, but are not so happy with their practice. I think it's a different lifestyle. It's a different practice. It's I, I think not as fulfilling as being a criminal defense lawyer. I never was a prosecutor. You've done both. But as a criminal defense lawyer, yes, I found it as fulfilling as anything other than child raising that I've ever done in my life. And I felt passionate about it. I do feel passionate about it. I think that people accused of crimes have an absolute constitutional right to uh, good, zealous defense. I think our criminal justice system is the envy of the world because we protect wrongfully accused people from the government. And that's our role. And I was happy to do it for decades. Right. But we let a lot of guilty people go free for fear of convicting an innocent person. That's why it's such a high standard beyond a reasonable doubt. But what about the pressure, Dan Reck? Do you have a client they're fighting for their life. They're looking at decades in jail. And you have all that pressure on you. Is that enjoyable? It's enjoyable when you win. And it's enjoyable to help the person. And it is so damn stressful that at the time, is it enjoyable? No. But to do it for decades, what I have told people over the years is, if you can't take a hard, guilty hit, and get up the next day and show up in court and do your morning docket, then you're in the wrong business, you know? There's an interesting combination of being sensitive to the needs of your client and actually empathizing with your client or sympathizing with your client 
and at the same time bifurcating your life so that if, and it does happen, you know, I like to think it didn't happen often in my career, but you you take hard hits where you think your client should have been found not guilty, and you got to get up the next day and do it again or find some other work. See, you grew up as a public defender, and I think that's one of the most valuable parts of the training because you have to learn to accept defeats as a public defender because you will suffer them. As a prosecutor, I should be winning my cases because I'm going after people who are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt or I would not be prosecuting them. But what about that? Aren't public defenders much better trained to learn how to take that hard hit and get up the next day? Yeah, and I want to give a shout out to the whole Colorado public defender system. It's one of the best public defender systems in the country. It trains the lawyers very well. There's really good public defenders, you know, in the system right today that are doing it day in and day out. And to do it well, just like you're saying, you have to care about your clients and you can't be their judge. They have a judge or a jury. The last thing they need is someone that's supposed to be representing them judging them. You're supposed to feel for them and take care of them and put them in the best possible light when you stand in front of a jury or a judge in sentencing. So you're hopefully their spokesperson because they aren't as well spoken as you, hopefully. Right. And, you know, it was, it's been, frankly, an honor to do that for all these years. No, it is. What a responsibility. And I started thinking about it a lot, especially when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were going at it as they competed for the nomination. And Joe Biden said, hey, I was a public defender. And a lot of people give Kamala Harris crap because she was a prosecutor. But they are different paths that we all take. and. I don't think you could have imagined being a prosecutor, and I don't think I was cut out to be a public defender. It's just different type people. What do you make of all of that? When you look at Kamala Harris, do you think, hmm, prosecutor, and is there always some kind of raised eyebrow about that? No. I mean, as a young public defender, I I think I did feel that way. But as I matured as a trial lawyer and a criminal defense lawyer, I, I think I tried to be objective about it. Look, my law firm is Recht Kornfeld, Recht and Kornfeld. My partner, Rick Kornfeld, was a federal prosecutor, and so we had both in our law firm. I think it's more subtle than that. But where I do agree with you is, yes, for me, it was a very comfortable task to be representing indigent people accused of crimes who are being prosecuted by the government. It's really a check on the government. I mean, you, you, I think, would agree with that. The whole criminal justice system is set up to make sure that not guilty people don't get steamrolled by the judicial system. I agree. And I already talked about some of the natural advantages the prosecutors have, like getting to go first, getting to go last, having the government resources behind them, Uh, We do have a great Colorado State public defender system throughout my career, and they produce great lawyers like Dan Recht and a whole bunch of great people. 
I'm worried about downtown Denver. I just came from the Rockies game around my office near the 16th Street Mall, just like yours. I see homeless camps. Downtown has become a little more frightening with less people populating it. What's going to happen to our beloved city of Denver? And will downtown come back? Yeah, I like to think that it will, and I'm sort of optimistic or Pollyannish about it. I think the pandemic has been devastating for a whole lot of unfortunate people. I think it has caused a significant increase in homelessness. I hope it is not a permanent situation. And I don't know, it's a complicated question, isn't it? I mean, what would you do if you were the mayor of Denver and to deal with homelessness? I know, but what would you do? It's still wrecked cornfield, and your office is downtown. Are you going to keep the same size office? I'm sure you guys have been working from home like the rest of us. Although our office has remained open, I just go in a little odder hours. I enjoy the light traffic, but what are you guys going to do as a firm? Do you still make decisions like that? Now that you're retired, hell, you're the lead name partner. Well, I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, but here's some of the thoughts that I've had. One of the things I think that made our office of 10 very good trial lawyers made the lawyers better than they would be on their own was the camaraderie and the ability to just go next door and brainstorm something with a lawyer you respected greatly. And that's how I felt about every one of my partners. And working remotely, you lose that, right? I mean, you can make an appointment with someone to talk at a particular time, but the spontaneity of the brainstorming is lost. And I think advocacy suffers subtly, but in a real way. Two heads are better than one, and it's nice to be able to bounce things off people you respect. I agree, but we're both old school. And the reality is that how do you balance that against no more commuting or let's lessen our office expenses? I agree, Craig. I don't know how it's all going to flush out and I'm not going to be part of that decision process, but I hear you. I think life is going to change. I mean, once the pandemic is totally over, Still, people will have realized, huh, we don't have to spend all that money for these big fancy offices, and we can work pretty darn well from home. And so I I think, like my law firm, there will always be an office there, but will it go back to how it was before the pandemic? I'm not sure. Right. It's like we both started before there were metal detectors at the courthouses, and I can get angry about it, but I... I'm more inclined to say, thank God I got to experience it back in the day because it's not the same. Is it the whole courtroom experience? No, it certainly isn't. God, I, 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 war stories are sort of fun. So when I was a young lawyer, I actually spent a short time in the public defender's office in Greeley also. I moved around the front range a little bit. And in Greeley, you'll love this, back then, the courthouse wasn't even air-conditioned yet. So in summer, the chief judge, in order to maintain decorum but, a lot, but you know make people comfortable, said, okay, look, lawyers, you have to either wear a tie or a sport coat. 
But you don't have to wear both. So you pick which one you want to wear to maintain some degree of formality and you can do away with the other. And that kind of thing would never happen now, I don't think. And as you say, metal detectors, are you kidding? Nobody even, jeez, nobody thought twice about what? Violence in a courthouse. Right. I mean, and then an Aurora cop shot his wife's divorce attorney in a case that Bill yeah. Ritter was the special prosecutor on in Arapahoe County. In Arapahoe County, I remember right. it well because that was the very first time. And everyone was rightfully freaked out about it. And life changed as a result. It sure did. But it was inevitable. But when we talked about the battleground, and since this is your retirement spiel, what were the great battles? So what stands out? What courtroom drama, if they were going to make a movie out of it? Tell us your biggest battles. Well, there's some fun stories and there's some biggest battles. So... Let's start with one little fun one I was thinking of when I was thinking about chatting with you tonight. You know, I represented a number of the Nuggets over the years when they would get in criminal trouble or any kind of trouble. And the origins of that relationship were that I, gee, you can place the date probably better than me, but I come home with my wife from having gone out on a Friday night and there's the old recording thing where you can push the button, you know, the button and right. it plays the messages sure. that were left. And the message went something like this. Mr. Rect, this is Kiki Vandeway. I really need to talk to you as soon as possible. Please call me at the following number. And I wasn't a sports fan at that point, Craig. I had been when I was younger and had played basketball, but it had been a number of years. And I turned to my wife naively and stupidly and said, who the fuck is Kiki Vandeway? I was like, <laughs> I was angry that someone would have the gall to call me in with a message like that where they expected a call back on a Friday night, which was stupid not to know who Kiki Vandeway was. The whole rest of the city knew. And I call him back, and lo and behold, he wants me to represent his young 19-year-old superstar, Carmelo Anthony, who got busted for pot. And I did represent him, and we won that case. And I laughed just because it's been so long. And the Nuggets sort of had a sense that I walked on water after that because it wasn't an easy case. And I didn't want to dissuade them of that notion, although it wasn't true. And then for years and years and years, as you know, I represented the Nuggets whenever one of them would get in trouble. So... Now, time out. This is bringing back a lot of good memories. Carmelo, I'll smile about him. He's still in the league. And Dan Recht had that famous representation of him, but wasn't the alternate suspect, the guy you pointed the finger at, J.R. Smith? No, it was not. Well, you'd be um, stupid not to because everybody points at J.R. Smith, but what was the defense? The, the defense was, I can tell you, in great detail, if you'd like, but the defense was, Thanks. here's what happened. They found Pot in his backpack as he was boarding a flight for an NBA game in Milwaukee, and he got busted because in those days, Pot was illegal, and even though it wasn't the deal then for the average Joe, for an NBA star, it could have been devastating. And he was a young developing star. You know, he, 
was a rookie the very same year that LeBron James was. That was a big year right. in basketball. And he's had an incredible Hall of Fame career. He was one and done at Syracuse, came out as a 19-year-old after winning the NCAA title. And exactly. Dan Rex saved his career. What was the defense? <laughs> the defense was that he had lent his backpack to a buddy that was living at his house, not a basketball player, and the guy had borrowed the backpack and left pot in it, forgetting it was in there. And so Carmelo had the backpack, never knowing that there was any pot in it because he would not have done that. And who was the Paul guy? I mean, the witness. And did you produce an affidavit? <laughs> well, right. See, oh, what was the guy's name? He had like some funny nickname like Slim or like, you know, like some street nickname. And it meant nothing to him to take the fall right. because for a non-basketball player, for a non-professional, for just a guy, you know, a, a it was up to a hundred dollar fine, I think. Something like that, right? right. Exactly well, it was right. prosecuted by the Denver City Attorney's Office. Yes, right. Exactly, right. Well, way to go. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose. But that's good. I mean, look how much that's changed, and look about wagering. Thank God, you know, as a Denver prosecutor, we never had to prosecute those weak marijuana cases because. It was Denver City Attorney's business. Thank God. And same thing with sports wagering. I told my bosses, I want nothing to do with that. And now that's legal. So, right. you know, it, right. it, it was crazy to put people in jail or put something on their record. It's a big deal. But tell us your big battles, your courtroom. Yeah. Drama. So, for example, I mean, there were so many like you and the intensity of representing someone on a murder charge where you, mm-hmm. where you believe in your heart as his lawyer, that he, and it normally is a he, is not guilty. The intensity of the pressure is overwhelming. The thing that allowed me to keep doing it over the years is I would like be sick to my stomach every trial until the judge, you know, called it to order and I stood up to do voir dire And then for whatever reason in my chemistry, I would calm down and be on stage and feel good about that. And so once I was on stage, the stage of the courtroom, right, the theater of the courtroom, I lost that intense nervousness, although it came back every trial, but I lost it once it started and was able to cope with the pressure of representing who you think is an innocent person. And if you screw up, or so I felt the person could go and would go to prison for life. And the same was true. The other really intense cases are sexual assault cases, rape cases. So I represented the one I'm thinking of in particular. I represented a police officer in Greeley in Weld County. And he was accused of sexually assaulting someone he stopped in the middle of the night. And I really didn't think that he had done it, but they had a pretty strong case against him and headlines in the Greeley paper every day and the pressure is on and I like my client and I think he's wrongfully accused and that'll keep you up at night. And those are just little examples or big examples, but just examples of 
what? Dozens of cases, right? Where the pressure is on and, you know, you're holding your client's life in your hands and you got, like a surgeon, I suppose, or like and you an got to do it right. Uh, right, but uh, when somebody gets on the big stage in sports, in entertainment, or on Broadway, God willing, Broadway will open back up. You either got it or you don't. And if you didn't feel that nervousness, that butterfly adrenaline feeling, we love it and we hate it. And as a young person, it's one thing. As an older person, it's another. Do you think trial work is a young person's game? Or what is the prime time in the life of a trial lawyer? It certainly is a young person's game when it comes to the energy you have for it. But as a young, aggressive, you know, full of piss and vinegar trial lawyer, you're lacking inevitably some degree of maturity and subtleness. I think it's early, it's like maybe after a decade of trying cases. You're still young, right. you know, you're in your, what, early 30s maybe or mid 30s, and you are on top of your game, man. You're good at it and you're confident about it. And and you have the advantage. I felt youth is an advantage, but I didn't get married till I was 38. And I almost felt bad for the other side because I knew they had a wife for kids. I should say a spouse for kids because I had a lot of female adversaries on the defense side. But I could just clear the decks and work all night and not worry about putting kids to bed. What about you? You started. Yeah, I raised kids. Early. I had kids in my 20s. But I, I do they understand when when Daddy's in a trial, he's in a funk. Leave him alone. He's in a yeah. World. I when I had trials, even as close as oh, Greeley or one big trial in Arapahoe County. It's not a very long drive, for sure. In Douglas County, I would get a hotel room and I'd just say, "I'll, darling, I'll see you on the weekend. I'm going to work. Right. I got to just work." Yeah, I did that routinely. Yeah, you got to focus. And that's the difference. It's such a small world. And my life tied to Kiki Mandaway, too. I had left the DA's office because I got a big offer from a 17th Street firm. And then I kind of liked it. I kind of didn't. And then Quentin Wortham trial took place. There was a celebrated mistrial. And Norm Early took me out to lunch at the Tabor Grill on my birthday. And he said, I want you back. I need you back. And I thought, wow, I don't know. And then as we're leaving the restaurant from across the room, I hear a shout of, hey, Norm. And Norm turns and he says, Kiki. And he knew <laughs> Kiki Bandaway. He was sitting there with Clyde the Clyde Drexler. They were both playing for the Portland Trailblazers. They were uh -huh. in town to play the Nuggets. We uh -huh. sat down with them for 15 minutes. I said, damn, there's more exciting than anything that's happened to me. In the two months I was with Rothgerber, that was the firm, I said, sorry, fellas, I'm going back to the DA's office, and I stayed another eight years. Best decision of my life, tied to Kiki Bandaway. So how about I that didn't know the Kiki part, way? but I remember when you went back, Craig. Yeah. Yeah, and then we, Quentin Wortham remembers that, too, but 
I'm interested that you remember that you represented a cop in Greeley. I'm going to assume you were successful on that case. We were, yes. It was a not guilty verdict. And now Derek Chauvin is on trial for killing George Floyd in Minneapolis. Are you watching it? What's your reaction? Well, I haven't, like, watched it live, but yes, I'm paying close attention to it. Could you represent the cop? Yes, I could. I mean, obviously, let's be clear, nobody asked me to represent them, but yes, I could do that. And in fact, uh, I, I think everyone has a Sixth Amendment right to competent counsel, and so that's the credo of criminal defense attorneys. Now, I get that people turn down cases, and it's easier to take whatever case comes in the door when you're a public defender and no one's paying you, so you really do have an obligation to take whatever case comes in the door, whereas as a private lawyer, you can say no to cases. But I've also represented right-wing extremists right. and, in fact, anti-Semites, like overt anti-Semites that know that I'm Jewish and still hire me, and I still take the case. Do you draw the line somewhere? Well, I've heard of cases where I might draw the line, but in my own private practice, frankly, the only place I drew the line was if I met with a potential client and I just didn't think we would make a good team. I just didn't like them. It had nothing to right. do with the defense or how offensive the allegations were. But if I didn't like them, I wasn't going to spend a year, you know, working with right, them. Just tell me this. That you charge the anti-Semites a little extra. <laughs> well, let's just say they didn't get a discount. That's for sure. <laughs> this guy. In the Nor did the cop, you know. Right. But, but, you know, I'm thinking about that cop, Derek Chauvin. And, and to me, the biggest part of the case was the decision not to charge the cop with murder after deliberation, which a lot of prosecutors would have. I would have thought about doing it. But he's charged with the equivalent of second-degree murder. And whether it's second-degree murder or third-degree murder, I'll trust the jury to make that decision. But he's going to be well, wait, he's, he's, I think he's charged with three different levels of homicide. Right. I think, and my understanding was, but you'd have a better sense of this, that, you know, they're so worried about a not guilty verdict that they, they'll be satisfied with any conviction for any level of homicide. All right. And so the jury has the Colorado equivalent of second-degree murder, manslaughter, and then criminally negligent homicide. There they call it second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. So Keith Ellison, the specially appointed prosecutor, the attorney general, he did not bring murder after deliberation, which I could have argued that to a jury. And frankly, I convicted some people of first-degree murder with less deliberation than that guy, you know, putting his knee on the neck for nine minutes, 29 seconds. The last Yeah, four that's a whole lot of deliberation. Right. I'm with you. Right. And, and people are telling him, you're killing the guy. He's getting warning from all sorts of people surrounding him. And he had that nonchalant look. There's something really off about that guy. Would not be my cup of tea, but... Dan Recht is a premier criminal defense lawyer, and people think of me as a former prosecutor, but I do know what prosecutors think, and I think that's an advantage that I have as a criminal defense attorney. Isn't that key to being successful? You've got to get in the mind of the prosecutor, because most cases, 
end in a, a deal or a dismissal? I think absolutely. I think having only been a criminal defense attorney has felt good to me, as I've said earlier in our conversation, but to have some experience as a prosecutor is probably a damn good thing. I like to think, though, and I think all good criminal defense attorneys have an ability to get in the head of a prosecutor or as best they can anticipate what a prosecutor is going to do and how they're going to do it. Yes. That's a big part of criminal defense. And that's why you can be a great criminal defense lawyer like Harvey Steinberg had about five or six years in the Rappahoe County DA's office. And he's one of the best as well. And now that you're not doing the Nuggets anymore, maybe we can swoop in and get them too, like we have the Broncos. Yeah, right. Exactly right. Anyway, it's so good to talk. Nobody to gets you. in trouble anymore. They're all they're all good boys. It isn't well, like the bad boys of the past. The pandemic doesn't help. You know, people aren't interacting, but they will be. I think times are going to start booming again, but... I do have a couple of Jews on this show. Mike Litwin is going to be a guest. You are. What does Passover mean to you, Dan Reck? It is still Passover. It is still Passover. In my mind, it, from a, it, it's a family thing in primary part. So, you know, we had our grandchildren over here and did a Seder, and it was very sweet. And it gives them a sense of ritual and it gives them a sense of family and it, it allows you to talk to them about in age appropriate way about liberation and freedom and underprivileged people and trying to help them. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that works well with kids and then an adult Seder. And we actually were lucky enough to have both can be really heavy good discussions about those very concepts, freedom and underprivileged people. And, you know, as Martin Luther King said, and many, many wise people have said over the years, if some people aren't free, well, then we shouldn't applaud our freedom. And so I, I I think it's a really meaningful holiday. I like it. And I like that it's a, a holiday that you do at home and not at a synagogue. I like that, too. And I like that we were able to have a few people over. I did not like that it happened right after this Boulder massacre. You went to see you, Boulder. It's happening again in our community. You and I have been media analysts about these things. Do you have any answers, Dan Recht? Give us, what does society need to do about these things? Well, these are big questions and good questions. From my perspective, I think we have to have better gun control. I understand the Second Amendment. I believe in the Second Amendment. I think that the U.S. Supreme Court has wrongfully interpreted the Second Amendment and that there needs to be more reasonable gun control. And it feels insane that insane people can so easily obtain weapons and kill people at the way that happened in Boulder, the way that happened in Aurora Theater, the, the way that happened in Columbine. I mean, think it's we don't have a good track record in our wonderful state. I'm so privileged to write as columnist at large for the Colorado Sun. And I wrote about assault weapons and how I think they should be banned. 
And I think that the Colorado Supreme Court would uphold it under the Robertson decision, which said Denver's assault weapon ban passed in 1989 when I was in the throes of my prosecutorial career, a reaction to gang members having automatic weapons and white supremacists having them to gun down Allen Berg. Remember that in the early 80s? I, I remember it vividly. Right. And you know who wrote the decision upholding Denver's assault weapon ban despite the Second Amendment, despite the Colorado Constitution saying he had a right to have firearms? It was a Republican, a CU star. Lou Rivera went there, student body president, excelled at the law school, came out, got appointed by Dick Lamb, even though he was a Republican. And he wrote that decision, which should have been written in the U.S. Supreme Court. But there was Antonin Scalia, and now are a bunch of mini Scalia's. And we've got a problem, not in Colorado, but in the United States. You're part of the ACLU. What do you say, Dan Recht, when everybody says, hey, what about the Second Amendment? Where are you guys? You know, my view is that the Second Amendment has been totally wrongly interpreted. You know, the people listening should just go read the very language of it. I mean, I really believe that the point of the Second Amendment was to have a a well-regulated militia. Correct. But we lost. The Supreme Court said 5-4 that it meant everybody has a fundamental right to weapon. And even if you say that, then you got to be like Rivera or like the First Amendment. You can't shout fire in a crowded theater. You can't have an assault weapon in Boulder, Colorado. Right? Right. Craziness. Yeah. Anyway, we're preaching to the same choir because maybe we go to the same show or maybe not. But it's close enough for a couple of Denver Jews. This is a Passover special, and you've made it special, Dan Recht. I know you're going to stay active, so we'll keep kibitzing. But congratulations on making the big decision to sort of retire from your farm. And I really appreciated you coming back to the lounge. Craig, it's an honor. It's a privilege. And this was fun. So thank you for chatting with me. You know, whenever that is, a decade from now, when you want to talk retirement and the pros and cons, you know who to call. Okay, I will. I will. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> Have a good evening. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, get a great high-quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP, and help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. 
That's Yale Kids for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. So there it is. I think that show will stand the test of time. Definitive interviews with Dan Rack, Mike Ledwin, and our troubadour, Dave Gunders, comes through once again. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy Passover. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.